invite you to turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 21 through 38. That's Luke 2, verses 21 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That is, it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then <clears throat> as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for this. Your very word through your servant Luke. We would pray that you would open our minds to understand this word. We pray that you will open our hearts to receive the good news that you have given to us in this, your word. Father, I would ask that you would fill me with your spirit. I would ask that you would help me speak clearly, Help me speak helpfully about the things concerning our Savior, our Redeemer, our Consoler here. 
We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we know, on the coast of California, our great forests of redwood trees, and these redwood trees grow unlike any other species of tree. Redwood trees may grow up side by side next to each other for many, many years, and then perhaps after 50 years or 100 years, they may touch. And at that point, bark covers the point of contact so that the two trees become one, and they grow as one tree from that point of contact. Near Santa Cruz are two trees. One of them grows at an angle to the other so that contact was made maybe 100 feet or so up in the air. And from that point onward, both trees are united as one tree. A single top growing from two totally different trunks. The two united as one. What a wonder. During this Advent season in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen how this wonder in creation has its more awe-inspiring counterpart in the incarnation of the Son of God. In the fullness of time, an angel announced to a young virgin named Mary that she had supernaturally conceived to bear a son. Uh, the Son supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit and of Mary's substance would be called the Son of the Most High. He would reign on his father David's throne forever. And in Mary's Son, we see this deity united to humanity in one person. What a wonder. You know, at Christmas, we remember how the Almighty entered the world as a helpless human baby, and he was unable at that point to do anything more than just lie there and stare and, and wiggle about. He had to be changed. He had to be fed. He had to be taught to walk. He had to be taught to talk just like any other infant. However, as great a wonder as the incarnation is, We've also seen during this Advent season that the greatest wonder is not the incarnation considered in itself, but, but rather God's purpose for the incarnation. He who had always been God by nature, writes Paul to the Philippians, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born a man and plainly seen as a human being, he humbled himself by living a life of utter obedience to the point of death. And the death he died was the death of a common criminal. The purpose of the incarnation was for our salvation. The incarnation of the Son of God in Mary's womb was just the first step in the sequence of steps that would take Jesus to a Roman cross where he would die rejected by both God and men for our salvation. What a wonder. And in our studies of Luke during this Advent season, we've seen how all the suffering and the rejection and the humiliation that accompanied Jesus' birth the stable, the swaddling claws, the manger, all these things 
were just these little hints given by God of Jesus' purpose as his incarnate son, that he should die for our salvation. And so now, this morning, Luke gives us more hints to wonder at. And these events of Jesus' circumcision and presentation in the temple and in the prophetic words of Simeon and Anna, we are given more details as to why the Son of God became incarnate. It was for the purpose of representation to represent us to God as our substitute. It was for the purpose of redemption, to redeem us from our sin and for the purpose of consolation so that we might know the comfort of God that lifts our hearts up in hope. First representation. Here's the big question. The big question is this. How may I a sinner, draw near to a holy God and look upon his face in peace? That's the big question that Christmas answers. In the events accompanying Jesus' birth and in the events of his circumcision, his presentation in the temple, we see now how God in love sent his son down from heaven to be our representative. As our representative, the Son of God clothed himself in human flesh to offer to God now the perfect obedience we have failed to offer to God. I mean, four times the law is referred to in this passage, and that's very important. It's just a hint of Jesus' mission. Paul writes to the Galatians, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. There is no peace with God. There is no enjoyment with God. There is no fellowship with God apart from perfect obedience of his law. And you and I have all fallen short of its perfection. And God's law has pronounced its curse upon us. But you see, wonder of wonders... God sent his son to be our representative. And as our representative, Jesus obeyed the law perfectly to bring us to God. Now, don't we see this principle of of representation in Genesis chapter 3 as the natural representative of the human race? Adam's righteousness was ours. It was ours as long as he maintained it. But you see, his sin became ours the moment he committed it. And in the same manner, all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has is ours as well because God sent him down to be the representative of a new race of people, a race of those who like Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna embrace Jesus as a representative and savior. You see, this is the foundation of what we call the covenant of grace. And there are two truths in particular that demand our attention. First, as our representative, Jesus actively obeyed God's law for us. As our representative, Jesus actively obeyed God's law for us. Eight days after his birth, Jesus is circumcised. According to the law of Moses, 40 days later, again, according to the law of Moses, the time for his mother and his own purification came when he was presented in the temple. Now, that Jesus submitted to these Jewish ordinances is highly significant. During the Old Testament, circumcision 
indicated it signified, among other things, the necessity of new heart by God's gracious intervention and the repentance that accompanied the new heart. Moses preached to Israel, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding to you today for your good. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Also, Mary's purification by the offering of sacrifices in the temple was prescribed by the Old Testament because it was presumed that the mother was impure. She was impure because of her child's guilt inherited from sinful Adam, the representative of the race. But here's the question in all of this. Why is Jesus' circumcision... And why is his mother's purification necessary? Since in this instance, the son born of Mary is no sinner. He's the sinless son of God, supernaturally conceived in the womb of Mary, and thus he did not inherit the guilt of Adam's first sin. So why the circumcision? Why the purification? And the answer is found in the purpose of the incarnation. God sent his son garbed in human flesh to be our representative, to actively obey God's law on our behalf as sinners. You see, to offer to God in human flesh the perfect obedience Adam as our natural representative failed to give, and which we failed to give as a result. Jesus fulfilled all the righteousness we owe to God as our representative. We do not have to vainly try and obey God for his acceptance because Jesus, our representative, already has. Now, yes, we are saved by Christ's obedient death on the cross. But something Luke wants us to see is that we are also saved by his obedient life on earth. In Christian theology, we call this Christ's act of obedience, Christ's perfect, lifelong conformity to God's law for us. As our representative, he fulfilled all the righteousness we owe to God. And something else. As a righteousness, Jesus passively obeyed God's law for us. Now, what do we mean by Jesus' passive obedience? Jesus' passive obedience involved him in enduring the penalty of God's broken law as our sinless representative and substitute. His name, Jesus, hints at this. Jesus means Savior. It means God saves. It's the same name as, as Joshua in the Old Testament. But there is, you see, such sweetness. There is such comfort in this name Jesus. I mean, think how the Son of God came down from heaven, not only as our Savior, but also as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And any one of those titles would have been appropriate for him. But Jesus passes all of those titles by and he selects the name which speaks most to us of his mercy and his grace and its help. It is the, he is the friend and savior of sinners. 
that he principally desires to be known. You see, in love he endured the penalty of God's law, not for those whom God counts as righteous, not for those whom God considers upright and good, but for those whom God counts to be sinners who are worthy of his wrath. What a wonder, what love. The Old Testament, or the old Bible teacher, R.A. Torrey, used to share the story about something he saw when he was visiting Switzerland. He would share the story about watching four men climbing the most difficult face of the Matterhorn. There was a guide, a tourist, a second guide below the tourist, and a second tourist below that second guide, and they were all roped together. And as they traversed a particularly difficult place, the lowest tourist lost his footing, and he went over the side, taking with him the lower guide, and the lower tourist above that guide. And so very quickly, three climbers dangled over the abyss. But the lead climber, immediately feeling a tug on the rope, drove his axe into the ice, he braced his feet, and he held the others fast. And as a result, all regained their footing and followed him victoriously to the top. And so it is according to the good news of the Christmas story. You see, Adam, the natural representative of the race, stumbled into disobedience and brought the whole race with him into the abyss. But you see, Jesus, this last Adam, the representative of a new race, kept his footing in this world. And where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. And where Adam failed, Jesus triumphed. Both actively and passively, he fulfilled all the righteousness we owe to God. You see, by his representative blood and by his representative righteousness, we are delivered from the curse of God's holy and perfect law. Through faith in him, our representative, you and I have peace with God. You and I have acceptance by God. We don't have to slave for God's acceptance by our obedience. Jesus has done that for us. He is our righteousness with God. Something else that we see in this passage is consolation. You know, from time to time we've observed that Christmas time can be overly sentimentalized in America, can't it? And, and, and when we do that, it obscures, we've said, the consolation and hope that Christmas, when we truly understand it, gives us. Yes, many of us perhaps have known this season as one of joy and happiness. Praise God for that, but, but others of us perhaps have known it as a time of sadness, as a time of loneliness. You know, I talked with my mom, my 93-year-old mom on Christmas Day, and she described her circumstances as dismal. She did it twice. She was lonely, and our circumstances prevented us from being with her. And some of us, too, perhaps, have felt similarly this Christmas season. But there's encouragement in this passage. 
There's encouragement here because you see, as we've seen on other Sundays, the, the Christmas of the Gospels, it's very realistic. It's realistic about the pain that we must endure, the rejection by men as well as the pain and humiliation that accompanied Jesus' birth. These things are promises that in Jesus we have a Savior who understands. In Jesus, we have a Savior who is able to sympathize with our trials and hurts and discouragements. He knew them from birth. And we need that assurance, don't we? Mary needed that assurance here. I mean, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Simeon prophesies that knowing her wonderful son will not shield her from a sword that will one day pierce her heart. That's not exactly a cheery Christmas greeting, is it? But you see, if the Gospels are frank about the pain we must endure, they are also overflowing with the hope of consolation that we know in Mary's Son. Jesus is praised here as the consolation of Israel. Mary and Joseph are obediently presenting Jesus to the Lord in the temple when they are met now by two elderly Israelites whose lives shine at this point like light in the darkness. Now, we don't know how old Simeon was, but we get the impression he's well advanced in years. And, and remarkably, God had revealed to this man that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And we wonder how many years had Simeon walked the streets there of Jerusalem awaiting the salvation that God had promised him. I think we can imagine him eagerly watching various parents presenting their children in the temple to the Lord and asking, is this the one? Is this the one? And then one day the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to the temple when Jesus is dedicated and there he sees the desire of his trusting heart. Oh, with what rapturous joy he takes this little child in his arms and he blesses God. Dismiss your servant now in peace. Nuns dimitus is the famous Latin translation of dismiss. Nuns dimitus is this fourth and the final Advent hymn we see in Luke's gospel, Simeon has been patiently awaiting the consolation of Israel and now he knows that consolation and so do all of us who like him embrace Jesus as Savior by faith. Oh, my hurting friends, my hurting friends, we know the consolation of God beyond anything that Simeon knew at this point, don't we? Paul writes to the hurting Romans in his letter to them that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, hurting ones, be consoled by two truths here. We have the love of our Father in heaven. Child of God, you have the love of your Father in heaven. To everyone who receives Christ, John's gospel says, God has given to them the right to be called the children of God. Do we have Christ? Then let us be assured that we have the Father's love. We have the Father's love working all together for our good. The Spirit testifies to our hearts that such is the case. Years ago, I knew a man, and, and he would share on different occasions about the day when he and his wife adopted the little boy they came to name Paul Jr., 
And their caseworker was preparing them to go before the judge in the courtroom and take custody of that little boy. And as he did, he said, when the judge asks you why you want to adopt this little boy as your own, don't tell her it's because we can give him a comfortable home. We can give him wonderful toys at Christmas time. We can give him a top flight education. Instead, tell her we want to adopt this little boy because we love him. It's simply because we love him. And so my hurting friend, if you have Christ, then you have the love of your Father in heaven. Oh, be assured that he loves you simply because he is love. He gave his beloved son, Jesus, to judgment, to gather you into his arms as his beloved adopted child. He paid a mighty price to adopt you. And my friend, having done so, he will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will see you through. And then we have the ear of our Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit who indwells the children of God enables us to cry, Abba, Father, Paul says, hurting child of God, your Father hears your cries. What a comfort to know that, that our unhappiness And our pain matter to our Heavenly Father. There's a great deal of misunderstanding that surrounds what Paul intends in this passage. Some believe the picture in Paul's mind here is that of resting with a tranquil spirit in the presence of God. But as lovely as that picture is, that's not what Paul intends here. The word cry is one that's often used for a shriek of anguish. It's used in the book of Revelation in connection with a woman who's in childbirth. You see, the picture Paul gives us in those words is not that of a believer resting quietly and tranquilly in his father's arms. It's in childlike faith, but it's, it's rather like a small child who is hurt and crying out in pain, Daddy, Daddy. Child of God, your Father hears your cries and your groanings. My friends, if an earthly father can watch over his children with unceasing love and care, how much more does our Heavenly Father do so? Abba Father, Abba Father. The believer who can say this has uttered better music than cherubim or seraphim can. Charles Spurgeon wrote once. There is in this title, Father, all that I can ask, all that my necessities demand, all my wishes can desire, because you see, I have the ear and I have the love. And I have the consolations of my Father in heaven. Finally, redemption. And he gives thanks to God for Jesus as the Redeemer of Jerusalem. What is redemption? It is freedom from bondage or jeopardy through the payment of a price. And one place we see the redemption Anna speaks of here clearly 
is in the 23rd chapter of this Gospel of Luke. There we read that Pilate delivered Jesus over to the will of his enemies and they led him away to be crucified. Now a Jew with the insight of a Simeon or an Anna perhaps might have seen in all of those actions this shadow of the Old Testament ceremony of the scapegoat. Didn't the priest at those times bring the scapegoat and put both of his hands on its head, confessing the sins of the people over it so that their sins might be laid upon the goat and cease to belong to the people? And then the goat was led away into the wilderness and it carried away the sins of the people so that if they sought for them later, they could no longer be found. Jesus is the scapegoat for our sin. When Jesus is brought before the priests and the rulers in the 23rd chapter of Luke who pronounce him guilty, it is as if it is God himself who imputes our sins to him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the prophets said. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, the apostles said, and then bearing our sin upon his shoulders as signified by the cross, we see Jesus, our scapegoat, led away. Jesus as our scapegoat has taken away our sin. Oh, my friend, if you, can, if you can feel assured that Jesus as your scapegoat has carried away your sin, can you feel that way? Do you believe that Jesus, as your scapegoat, has carried away your sin? How can you know? Well, as you look at the cross upon its shoulders, does that signify your sin to you? There's one way you can tell. Have you, have you come to Jesus? Have you laid your hand upon his head and confessed your sin over him and trusted in him? My friend, if you have, then your sin no longer lies on you. Instead, it has been transferred by blessed imputation to Christ, your substitute, your redeemer, your scapegoat. And he has taken it all away. It is no longer to be found, even before the judgment seat of God on the last day. Wonder of wonders. Praise be to God for his grace to us in Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have been helping us see during this Advent season that this wonder that your son became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that two natures were inseparably united in one person. As wonderful as that is, that's not the greatest wonder at all. We have been seeing that the greatest wonder of all concerns the purpose of the incarnation. And the purpose was that Jesus would go as our representative, as our substitute, as our redeemer to the cross, that he would bear our sins and that he would carry them away from us. 
Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you, too, that he is the consoler of your people. I would pray, Father, as we embrace the Savior as our own, we would know your consolation, lifting our hearts up in hope. We ask this in his precious name.